Lesson 5 of The Elements of Herpetology and Ichthyology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Elements of Herpetology and Ichthyology by William Ruskenberger. Lesson 5 Class of Fishes. General characters, form, integuments, skeleton, muscular apparatus, swimming bladder, senses, apparatus of digestion, circulation, respiration, animal electricity, habits, fishing, classification. The fourth and last class of the branch of vertebrate animals comprises the fishes. That part of natural history which treats of them is termed ichthyology, from the Greek ichthus, a fish, and logos, a discourse. These animals, as everybody knows, are destined to live under water, and this circumstance has impressed upon them a peculiar organization. But the most important differences they present when compared with other vertebrata, consist in the conformation of the apparatuses of respiration and circulation. They never have lungs and always breathe by branchiae only. Their heart has but two cavities and only receives venous blood, which, after being in contact with oxygen, enters a dorsal vessel where no new motive force accelerates its course to different parts of the body. Therefore, their circulation is not as active as it is in the superior animals, and like that of reptiles, their blood is cold. Their skin is naked or covered with scales only. They have no mammae like the mammalia and are reproduced by the means of eggs. Their extremities are in the form of fins. The external form of fishes varies, but their body is generally all of a piece. The head, which is of the same size of the trunk, is not separated from it by a narrowing like the neck of the superior vertebrate animals, and the tail, owing to its size at the base, is not distinguishable from the rest of the body. Some of these animals are entirely without fins, but in most of them we find a considerable number of these organs, some placed on the middle line of the back or belly, and consequently unpaired or singly, and others on the side arranged in pairs. The latter represent the extremities of other vertebrate animals, the anterior extremities which correspond to the arm in man and the wing in birds, are fixed on each side of the trunk, immediately behind the head, and are called pectoral fins. The abdominal extremities, less distant from each other, generally occupy the inferior face of the body and may be placed more forward or backward from beneath the throat to the origin of the tail. They are called ventral fins. 
the single or unpaired fins occupy, as we have just said, the middle line of the body, and are distinguished into first dorsal, second dorsal, anal, and caudal fins, according to their situation on the back, under the tail, or at its extremity. They are all nearly of the same structure, and almost always consist of a fold of the skin, sustained by bony or cartilaginous rays, very much in the same manner that the wings of bats and dragons are sustained by the fingers or toes, or by the ribs of those animals. We also observe on the external surface of the body large slits placed on each side immediately behind the head, which serve as an outlet to the water which has laved the branchiae. They are openings of the gills. Generally, there is but one on each side, and their anterior edge is movable and resembles a shudder. Along the whole length of the body, on each side, there is a series of pores which form what ichthyologists call the lateral line. The skin is sometimes nearly naked, but is almost always covered with scales. Sometimes these scales are in the form of rough grains. Sometimes they are very stout tubercles or plates of considerable thickness but in general they are very thin lamellae, covering each other like shingles or tiles, and let into folds of the skin. They may be compared to our nails, though they contain more calcareous salts. The colors with which these animals are adorned are astonishing in their variety and brilliancy. Sometimes they can only be compared to the most glittering gold or silver. Sometimes they present the richest tints of green, blue, red, or black. The silvery matter which frequently gives them such a beautiful metallic luster is secreted by the skin and is composed of a multitude of small polished plates. The skeleton of fishes is ordinarily bony but in many of these animals it always remains fibrocartilaginous or cartilaginous, and in some this frame possesses even less solidity and remains absolutely membranous. In this respect they form the connecting link or passage between the vertebrate and invertebrate animals. The bones never have a medullary canal and the cartilage which constitutes their basis is not like that of mammals and birds, for, when boiled in water, it does not yield gelatin. The skeleton is composed of a head, to which is joined a highly developed hyoid apparatus serving for respiration, a trunk and extremities. The structure of the head is very complicated, we first observe a middle portion composed of a great number of bones joined together by sutures and forming a sort of immovable keel to which are suspended the bones of the jaws, cheeks, etc. This middle portion, 
the form of which is that of a pyramid with three sides, with its summit directed forward, presents posteriorly the cranial box or skull in which is lodged the apparatus of hearing as well as the brain. Its middle part is hollowed out to form the orbits, and in front we find pits which belong to the olfactory apparatus. There are bones which correspond to those of the heads of mammals, but most of these bones in fishes are composed of several pieces which never run together into one, as happens at an early age in the mammalia and birds. At the anterior extremity of this portion of the head, we find the upper jaw, which is sometimes immovable, though it generally preserves great mobility. On each side there is an intermaxillary bone placed near the middle line and a lower jaw bone which extends laterally and moves upon the first. Besides these parts, we find a very considerable apparatus designed to afford attachment to the branchiae, or to protect them, composed in part of the hyoid bone, which is covered on each side by a sort of cover or door called operculum, or gill cover. The vertebral column, which is continuous with the head, is divided into two distinct portions, one dorsal and the other caudal. The body of the vertebrae has a peculiar form. It is hollowed before and behind by a conical cavity. These two hollow spaces are sometimes joined so as to form a hole, and the double conical cavity arising from the junction of two neighboring vertebrae is filled by a soft substance. The ring, destined to form a passage for the spinal marrow, is surmounted by a spinous process, and on each side there is a more or less distinct transverse process, which, over the cavity of the abdomen, extends outwardly and articulates with the corresponding rib, but in the caudal portion of the spine it is directed downwards, and often forms, with its fellow of the opposite side, a ring, from the lower part of which arises a long spinous process similar to that which is situate on the dorsal face of the vertebra. The ribs are sometimes wanting. At other times they encircle the whole abdomen and in a small number of fishes, they are fixed to a series of unpaired or single bones, which should be regarded as the sternum. They frequently sustain one or two stylets, which have an outward direction, and penetrate the flesh. Sometimes there are similar stylets arising from the bodies of the vertebrae, and hence it is that, in certain genera, such as herrings, fish bones become so numerous. On the middle line of the body, we also find a certain number of bones called interspinal, which generally rest upon the ends of the spinous processes of the vertebrae, and by their opposite extremities, 
articulate with the rays of the middle fins. These rays are sometimes pointed bones, called stings or spines. Sometimes they are stalks or stems, bony only at the base, formed of a multitude of small articulations in continuation and often branched towards the end. These last appendages are called soft or articulated rays. They always form the caudal fin, and sometimes there are no others. The lateral fins, which represent the extremities, are terminated by rays similar to those of the vertical fins, and analogous to fingers. At the base of the pectoral fin, we find a series of from four to five small flat bones, comparable to the bones of the carpus, which in their turn are attached to two flat bones, which seem to be the radius and ulna enlarged. This apparatus is supported on a species of bony belt, situate immediately behind the gills, and on which the operculum applies. It consists of a series of three bones extending from the cranium to the hyoid apparatus and supports posteriorly a long stylet. The principal piece that enters into its composition is that which supports the forearm, which may be compared to the humerus. It joins below with that of the opposite side and with a middle prolongation of the hyoid apparatus and is attached to the cranium through the medium of two bones which Cuvier considers analogous to the scapula. Finally, the stylet which arises from it and is prolonged backwards upon the ribs is ordinarily formed of two pieces and may be compared to a coracoid bone. The posterior extremity is less complicated. The rays of the ventral fin are supported by a single bone, generally triangular, which often becomes attached in front to the middle junction of the bony belt of the pectoral extremity, and at other times it is merely suspended in the flesh. In cartilaginous fishes, the arrangement of the skeleton differs from what has just been described. The head especially is much more simple in its structure. The muscular apparatus is composed of muscles destined to flex the vertebral column laterally and also to move the tail. They form the largest part of the mass of the body of fishes. By striking the water laterally, by alternate flexions of the trunk and tail, these animals communicate to their body nearly the whole of the rapidity they have in swimming. Their vertical fins serve to increase the extent of the species of keel or oar they form, while the chief use of the pectoral and ventral fins in general is to influence the direction of their course and to maintain the equilibrium of the animal. A peculiarity of their organization, which is of great assistance in swimming, 
is the existence of a sort of pouch filled with air, and so placed that it can be compressed at will. This swimming, or air bladder, which is placed in the abdomen beneath the dorsal spine, ordinarily communicates with the esophagus, or stomach, by a canal, through which the air contained in it may escape. But this fluid does not seem to enter by that route. It is produced by secretion, the seat of which is in a portion of the parietes of the reservoir itself, which is of a glandular structure. By the motions of the ribs, this bladder is more or less compressed, and according to its volume, it gives to the body of the fish a specific gravity, equal, superior, or inferior to that of the water, and causes it thus to remain in equilibrium, to descend or ascend in this liquid. It is remarked that it is often wanting, and that it is very small in those species that swim near the bottom or bury themselves in the mud. In a small number of fishes, the pectoral fins are so very much developed as to enable the animal to sustain itself in the air for a few moments, when it springs out of water. There are some also that by crawling or by frequent leaps are capable of progression on land. It is asserted that some can climb trees, but instances of this kind are very rare. Fishes pass their lives almost entirely in providing for their subsistence, or in escaping from their enemies. Their external senses seem to afford them only very dull impressions, and their faculties are of the most limited character. Fishes are very stupid animals. They have no remarkable intelligence or instinct, and their brain is but little developed. It does not entirely fill the cavity of the cranium, and is surrounded by a liquid matter of a fatty nature. The ear of fishes, in general, is composed only of a vestibule surmounted by three membranous semicircular canals suspended in the cavity of the cranium on each side of the brain, and to which waves of sound are communicated only after they have set in vibration the common integuments and bones of the cranium. Generally, there is no appearance of an external ear. Their eyes are ordinarily very large and are unprovided with true eyelids and a lacrimal apparatus. The skin which covers them is transparent, and the iris is silvery and immovable, or nearly so, and the cornea is almost flat. The pupil is very large, and the crystalline lens is spherical. The nasal fossae do not open into the pharynx, as is the case in vertebrate animals that breathe air. The tongue is never truly fleshy, and the sense of taste is but little developed. Tact must be extremely obtuse. In general, the skin of these animals is entirely covered with scales. Sometimes, however, it is naked. 
Ordinarily, fishes are very voracious and are not very particular in their choice of food. The species which live chiefly on vegetables are very few in number. They are almost all carnivorous and devour each other. Fishes sometimes have teeth, not only in the jaws, but also in all the bones that surround the cavity of the mouth and that of the pharynx. At other times, they are entirely wanting. These teeth never have roots, and their form varies very much, particularly those that are found on the pharyngeal bones, and which serve to grind the food when on its way to the esophagus. They have no true salivary glands. The esophagus is very short. The other viscera of the digestive apparatus are lodged in the abdomen, which is lined by a peritoneum and separated from the cavity containing the heart by a sort of diaphragm. In some fishes, chiefly the cartilaginous fishes, the abdomen communicates externally by two openings, situate upon the sides of the anus so that the peritoneum is continuous with the skin. The stomach is, in general, very distinct. That part which corresponds to the large intestine is not much larger than the small intestine, and there never is a cecum as in mammals. The liver is generally large and of a soft texture. The position and size of the gallbladder vary. The place of the pancreas is almost always supplied by two tubes of a peculiar tissue placed around the pylorus. The position of the anus varies much. Sometimes it is found under the throat and at others at the base of the tail. The kidneys are very voluminous and extend along both sides of the vertebral column the whole length of the abdomen. Their excretory ducts terminate in a sort of bladder, the opening of which is posterior to the anus. Digestion seems to be carried on very rapidly, and the chyle is absorbed by numerous lymphatic vessels, which empty by many trunks into the venous system near the heart. The blood of fishes is red. The globules are elliptical in form, and of considerable size. The heart is placed under the throat in a cavity, separated from the abdomen by a sort of diaphragm, as we have just said, and protected by the pharyngeal bones above, by the arches of the branchiae on the sides, and generally by the humeral cincture behind. It is composed of an auricle, which receives the venous blood collected in a large sinus, a kind of large vein situated near it, and of a ventricle placed below and giving origin at its anterior extremity to a pulmonary artery, the base of which is inflated and constitutes a contractile bulb. This vessel soon divides into lateral branches which are distributed to the gills, and the blood, after traversing these organs, goes to the head through another vessel, 
which also runs along the arches of the branchiae. There these canals send some branches to the neighboring parts, and unite to form a great dorsal artery, which is directed backwards, beneath the spinal column, and sends branches to all other parts of the body. But all the venous blood does not go directly into the sinus mentioned above. That of the intestines and some other parts, before returning to the heart, is carried through the liver by the vena porta. We see now that the blood, in passing through the circulatory circle, entirely traverses the respiratory apparatus as in mammals and birds, but it only passes once through the heart, which must render its progress slower. The heart itself corresponds in its functions to the right half of the same organ in the superior vertebrate animals. Respiration is effected by means of the air which is always found dissolved in the water, and takes place on the surface of a multitude of very vascular and projecting lamellae, attached to the external edge of the branchial arches. Generally, there are, on each side, four branchiae, each composed of two rows of elongated lamellae. In most of the cartilaginous fishes, there are five, and in the lamprey, we find seven. In almost all the bony fishes, these lamellae are simple, and only attached at their base. In a small number, they are, on the contrary, ramified and in the form of tufts. Finally, in most cartilaginous fishes, they are attached to the skin by their external edge, as well as to the arches of the branchiae by their internal edge. The water necessary for respiration enters the mouth and by an act of swallowing passes through the slits left between the branchial curves or arches and in this way reaches the branchiae, laves their surfaces, and then escapes through the openings of the gills. We see, in fact, the animal open its mouth and elevate the operculum alternately. In fishes, in which the branchiae are free on their external edge, one of these openings on each side is sufficient. But when the branchiae are fixed, there is required as many openings as there are spaces betwixt the branchiae. Consequently, we are made acquainted with the arrangement of the respiratory apparatus by simply inspecting the external openings. Fishes consume a very moderate quantity of oxygen. Some, however, are not content with what is dissolved in the water and visit the surface from time to time to breathe the air. There are some indeed that swallow it, and by causing it to pass through the intestine, convert the oxygen into carbonic acid. When fishes remain out of water, they generally perish very quickly from asphyxia, not for the want of oxygen, but because the branchial lamellae, being unsustained by the water, are effaced, and do not permit the blood to pass readily through them, and because these organs, by drying, become unfitted for performing their functions. 
Therefore, those fishes that perish most promptly from exposure to the air have widely open gills, which facilitates evaporation from the branchiae, while those that resist this exposure best have these openings very narrow, or even possess some receptacle in which they preserve water for moistening these organs. As we have already stated, fishes produce scarcely any heat, but some of them possess the singular faculty of producing electricity, and of giving very powerful shocks to animals that touch them. The torpedo, the solurus, and a species of gymnotus are of this kind, and what is very remarkable, the conformation of the electric organ differs in each one of them. To the simultaneous development of an incalculable number of eggs deposited in the same place, and the instinct that induces different fishes to follow each other, we must attribute the assemblage of certain species in immense and close legions called by fishermen shoals of fish. In fact, we cannot well term these assemblages companies or societies. The individuals composing them do not aid each other. From having the same necessities to satisfy, they keep in the same locality or abandon it. And if we sometimes observe one among them followed as a leader, it probably arises from a tendency to imitation which always accompanies the first dawnings of reason. It may be astonishing to some to speak of the reasoning of a fish, an animal that is proverbial for its stupidity. But if we study the habits of these beings in our fish ponds, we shall see that, when they swim tranquilly, without any determined aim, they pass side by side, without seeming to pay attention to the motions of their companions. But if one of them, suddenly perceiving a bait, hastens its course and swims swiftly in a determined direction, we frequently observe that the other fishes, even those that are placed so as not to perceive the object of attraction, at once follow in the crowd to profit by the discovery. Now this instinct of imitation resembles simple reasoning, it is true, but consecutive. May we not suppose that these animals attribute the rapid course of their companion to some circumstance of a nature to interest them also, to the discovery of some danger they ought to avoid, or to some bait he rushes to devour, and it is for this reason they hasten in pursuit? And is not this the case everywhere, even among men? And is not the instinct of imitation, which produces so many good and evil actions, a consequence of this tendency to profit by the results of the observation or judgment of another, and to attribute to the actions of those who seem to be moved by a powerful impulse an object that it would be equally desirable for all to attain. Whatever it may be, these animals thus assembled in troops often make long voyages, 
either to gain the open sea or to ascend rivers or to change their latitude. Certain fishes lead an almost sedentary life and always remain in the same locality where they were born. Others are always roaming, and a great many of these animals make periodical voyages of greater or less extent. In the cold season, they ordinarily approach the coast or into rivers and in this way make long passages. Every year, about the same period, shoals of migratory fishes arrive in the same places, and it is generally believed that many of these species regularly migrate from the north towards the south and from the south towards the north, pursuing a determined route. Perhaps it would be more correct to believe that when they disappear from the shore, they only retire to the great depths of the sea. According to their habits, fishes are divided into marine and fluviatile. There are some, too, that alternately frequent salt and fresh water, and the nature of this fluid seems to exercise less influence upon them than is generally believed. For some essentially marine fishes have been successfully reared in reservoirs of fresh water. The number of these animals is immense, and as they furnish man a wholesome and agreeable aliment, fishing is an important branch of industry among the most savage as well as among the most civilized people. The Romans, who, after the loss of their liberty, displayed such boundless luxury in the table, did not confine themselves to sending fishing vessels to the neighboring seas and to receiving fishes from the Ionians, inventors of the fish car, which is a kind of floating reservoir for keeping fish alive. But better to secure the supply, the wealthiest citizens constructed immense fish ponds filled with seawater in which they deposited the most delicate fishes of Sicily and even of Greece and Egypt. The first person who built one of these great depots was Lucius Murina, so named from the care he took of the Murina, or eels. He had numerous imitators and was even surpassed in his follies by Lucullus, who cut through a mountain near Naples to introduce the seawater into his ponds and hollowed the rocks which surrounded them into caverns to afford his fishes a cool retreat during the heat of summer. Other great personages of the ancient capital of the world prided themselves on possessing fishes so tame as to suffer themselves to be touched. We are assured that Crassus was more distressed upon losing one of his eels than upon the death of his three children and history relates the curious circumstance of a Roman lady going into mourning on account of the death of a favorite Murina. To give an idea of this strange taste of those degenerate Romans for fish of every kind, we will mention a supper given to the Emperor Otho by his brother, at which there were served two thousand plates of rare fishes.
Pliny relates as a fact that one Vidius Pollio, a particular friend of Augustus, took delight in throwing his slaves in the eel vats for the pleasure of seeing them torn to pieces and devoured. On a particular occasion, the emperor honored Pollio with his company at a brilliant entertainment at which a slave unfortunately happened to break a costly crystal vase. The unfeeling master, in a paroxysm of fury, exclaimed to the other attendants, Away with him to the Murini! The poor wretch, almost dead with horror, fell at the feet of the emperor, beseeching that he might be permitted to die some death less terrible. Astonished at the sudden and strange circumstance, Augustus made speedy inquiry into this extraordinary mode of punishment, and when he fully understood the savage cruelty, disposition, and practice of Pollio, ordered at once all the remaining vessels broken before his face, directed the reservoirs to be filled up, gave freedom to the pleading slave, and only consented to spare the life of the murderer, his master, in consideration of his former regard. Natural History of the Fishes of Massachusetts by Jerome V. C. Smith, M.D. Modern times have not witnessed similar follies, but nevertheless, for many maritime people, fishing has not been the less a source of great wealth. At one period, which is not very remote from our own, this branch of industry employed one-fifth of the total population of Holland, and in the herring fishery alone, that country covered the whole North Sea with her vessels. In England, it subsisted a considerable number of good and hardy sailors, and even in France, where it is of less importance, there are from thirty to forty thousand fishermen, about one-third of whom venture as far as the coasts of Iceland and Newfoundland. And in the United States, a very large number of people derive their living from the various fisheries. The immense class of fishes is naturally divided into two series, the osseous and cartilaginous fishes which differ from each other not only in their skeleton, but also in a great number of other characters. The modification of the structure of the branchiae, the disposition of the mouth, and the nature of the fin rays that sustain the dorsal fin, as well as the position of the ventral fins, furnish naturalists with the basis for the division of the two groups into orders. End of Lesson 5